Hello and welcome to this second bonus episode, Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. My current research is around the areas of food and death and the rituals around both. We talk often about food being such a huge part of life, but it is also part of death. The American South is particularly known for its traditions and rituals around food and funerals and funerary practices. And so I interviewed pastor Ashley Ann Masters and we discussed how food can bring us together in grief, just as it does when celebrating other life events. I found this to be a particularly uplifting and comforting episode even considering the subject matter. However, we do talk about the death of a family member, we talk about death in general, and I appreciate this might not be the right time for everyone to listen to this. I wanted to let you know what was involved so that you can make your own choices. We discuss how food and ritual and humour can really be of help in difficult times. So without any more delay, I'll move to our interview. Hello everyone, and welcome to this episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. I'd like to welcome Ashley Ann, um, who is here to talk to us today. Um, I'll let Ashley Ann um, tell you all about herself. Thank you so much for having me. I am Ashley Ann Masters. I am a Presbyterian pastor in North Carolina, so Protestant Christian in the Southern United States. And for about 15 years, I have been a hospital chaplain, so clinical clergy. So I am often with people when they receive a new health diagnosis or with their family members while they are in surgery or in times of anticipatory grief and end of life and then grief and working with families around what rituals would be meaningful to them throughout any process of any kind of health diagnosis or um procedure or death and working with them to help with any kind of forms of comfort that may be helpful for the family, depending on their faith tradition. Again, I am a Protestant Christian, but I have worked in interfaith settings in hospitals where we would work with families from all over the world. And so making sure that they have whatever is important to them, especially for end of life situations and any kind of rituals that we can help facilitate and get them in touch with other people who could if we are not the right people. Um, Certainly just in those moments of extreme pain and trauma and sadness and grief, we want to offer the best care and dignity and respect that we can. And so often that looks like helping with other resources and bringing in other colleagues from interfaith groups and anything we can do. But um, I have a deep passion for being with people in the most vulnerable moments and honoring that as best I can. Thank you, Ashley Ann. You're so welcome. And thank you, Ashley, for coming to talk to us. Um, I think probably uh, it's the first thing that comes to mind, we, we talked a little bit before this, and would be actually dealing with people in those situations, although that's somewhere you want to be and you want to provide the best for those people. How do you walk away from that and keep yourself away from all those very strong emotions? Mm-hmm. I think um, for me, I mean, I'm an Enneagram too. So for those familiar with that, I'm a helper and caregiver. And I, you know, I'm always so honored to be trusted with people's stories, especially stories of pain and resilience and grief and trauma. Um, and so there's, you know, for me, it's important to hold it and honor it, but also, you know, it, it's not mine to keep it's mine to honor. And so often what I'll do when I I currently direct a nonprofit, but 
previously when I was in the hospital full time, I would go home and, you know, write, write the names of the deceased and then light a candle for them and honor that. And then that was sort of my closing ritual for the day for myself. And then um, often would remember, I would also put the date in the calendar to go back to and remember that date as a way of honoring their life. And, you know, often I would be the one to officiate a funeral if they were, you know, a Protestant Christian family and wanted some sort of celebration of life, funeral or graveside service, that kind of thing. Often I would be the one to officiate that. And that is also something I hold dear and um, and in high regard for the families when they ask me to do that. And that is also a way not only to celebrate the person's life and and respect the family's wishes, but for me, that's also a form of closure as well in my own rituals of that, of being able to stand in the face of death and offer hope and to be able to honor that this person lived and this person was as we all are flawed and full of goodness and made mistakes and offered love and beauty and, you know, impacted the world, however they did. And um, again, as, as a person of faith, I believe that this, there, there is hope even in the face of death and that death does not have the final word, but funerals are also for the living. So for me, that's um, I am very, focused on doing whatever the family asks of me that would be comforting to them because everybody is comforted by different things. And we never know the relationship of families with the deceased until they tell us. So I want to, you know, be as authentic as possible to that relationship and honor the truth of who they were and who they are to the family and um, how they will be missed. But for me, that's when, when I have the privilege of officiating, that is also a form of closure. Um, but otherwise, I do my own rituals. I also, you know, will often on there's there's certain patients from the hospital that you remember more than others for various reasons, either either because of the nature of the death or the longevity of the relationship. And so there's still some that I remember and I remember their days even without seeing it in writing. And I will always stop and I will still do some 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 ritual to remember them, either if it's um you know, if I'm by a body of water, I will often pick up a stone and say their name and toss it back into the water or light a candle or write their name in the sand and then wipe it away. Some, something to honor that because we are, you know, we are each other's stories and we're each other's keepers and we're all just walking each other home here. Um, and so I, I just, I try to remember and honor, but not keep it to myself again because they're not my stories but it's also because we can't hold all of that for everybody we need to give it back to the universe and as a person of faith i believe you know we are created from dust and to dust we shall return and so to me literally having the great privilege of officiating gravesides and burials um i get to be the one to help return that um that beautiful being to the earth and then they're, you know, they're all around us and their spirit is all around us and whatever happens in the next life, um, who knows? But I think it's for me, getting to be a part of that is so beautiful and anything I can do to help usher them into a peaceful next 
stage of whatever that is, is really important and a huge piece of my own closure. That's, that's it's wonderful to hear, actually. It's that somebody, I think that's the thing, isn't it? Especially for people who maybe don't have a lot of family or don't have a lot of people left in the world for them, that there's still someone who remembers them and almost the, the, they're still in the world while someone still thinking of them or speaking of them or doing you know a simple ritual for them. And I think that's, you know, I think something that people would find comforting, really comforting. Um, I suppose, obviously, you see the family in the role that you've done, but obviously in different reasons, deal with things in different ways. Um, and you're there to support, but what support generally um, comes from the community in the event of a death, whatever that is the reason for that? So in the Southern Protestant tradition, which I can speak to, I grew up, I was born in North Carolina, grew up in South Carolina, now live in North Carolina again. And I am a preacher's kid as well as being clergy. So I can um, I can speak to the traditions of the, the Southern white Protestants um, is what I'm speaking to, but we do funeral food really, really well in the South. Lo you know, food is the love language of the South anyway. Um, and, and comfort food in times of grief is something we do especially well. And often churches in the South would actually have cookbooks and there would be sections that had funeral foods would be their own section of the cookbook. But often what would happen is when when someone dies, you then bring food to the house, wherever, you know, wherever the family is gathering, there will be food there. And so there's that meal is often different from a reception or some kind of larger community meal after the funeral. And so, but to start with that, so often when someone dies, you will bring food to the house immediately. I mean, the day of. So depending on the time of day, you know, you bring like a ham or fried chicken, something like that for dinner, casserole. Casserole is the currency of the South. Um, and then typically that's a green bean casserole. There's also potatoes. We call them funeral potatoes. It's a version of a potato casserole that has cornflake cereal on top, a ton of butter, a ton of cheese. It's, I can't grieve without it. It's amazing. Um, and we all know who makes the best, you know, that's how we, we, we rank people by how well they make funeral potatoes and deviled eggs, which I'll speak to in a minute. Um, so that typically you would bring like a dinner type meal, and then you also bring food for breakfast and lunch the next day. And that's for however many people, you know, you expect families to gather. So you bring gobs of food for everyone. And so that that's what's at the family's home. And so like, you know, you would have stuff for breakfast, like a breakfast casserole, as well as biscuits, ham biscuits, and then lunches like chicken salad, pimento cheese, deviled eggs, potato salad. Um, we grieve a lot with potatoes and starch and carbs here. Um, and so that's that's what you would take to the house. And then and whatever other favorites that, you know, the family has. And that's just sort of a given in most churches. There are committees or funeral guilds that just, they just do that. The second it happens, they go into action and food appears and that's just what happens. And then if there is a service, like a celebration of life, a memorial service, a funeral at the church, then often there is a meal in the fellowship hall after it. And again, that, that food depends on the time of day. So it's, if it's lunch, you know, it's a lot of, 
finger sandwiches is what we call them. They're often cut into triangles <laughs> and they would be cucumber or tomato or pimento cheese. You always cut the crust off. I don't know why, but that's how we grieve. Um, and then uh, you would have various salads and more ham biscuits, more deviled eggs. There's always a punch that has like an ice ring in it that kind of, you would often use a bunt cake pan to make the ice ring. I don't know why. Um, it's just traditions of you know, grandmothers passed it down to us. So you would make, you know, a punch out of that. And most churches, churches used to have China, like their own sets of dishes. And so they would have punch bowls and all that kind of stuff. And so there was one that, you know, typically it's green, the punches, and it's like lime sherbet and ginger ale is the base of that. Um, sometimes seven up, that kind of thing. And then, um, you know, for daytime, that's what you would have. And then leftovers would also go back with the family to the house for everybody there. And then food just keeps coming as long as they have family in town. Um, and really until you tell them to stop. <laughs> That's just sort of what happens. Um, and it, it is very common, again, here, here in the South, we would call it a reception after a funeral. Um, in, I, was, I was in Chicago for about 10 years and there in, in the Midwest of the US, it's called a repass. It's the same thing. It's a gathering in a communal space, typically at a church where people eat. I mean, that's, you know, it's the same thing. And um, typically the graveside services, if, if there is a celebration of life, like a memorial service or a funeral and a graveside or burial, then typically the celebration is more public. And that's the one that's attended by anybody in the community. It could be hundreds of people. And then the burial or graveside or, you know, scattering of ashes is much more private and typically family only. That is typically under 20 people. So often there would be the larger service and celebration and reception. And then the family and the officiant would do the smaller service. A lot of people do it that way, or they would do that service privately in the morning and then go have the big service and then the reception and then go home. Um, and then often, you know, people just drop by. It's pretty much an open door the whole time, um, depending on the situation. Certainly now that we are kind of coming out of COVID protocols and that kind of thing, certainly during COVID, we didn't do that. But now it's sort of back to, there will be stuff dropped off at the house really forever. It's just, we we grieve with food and we grieve with each other and certainly you know, there's a theological element to table fellowship of breaking bread and drinking wine together. Um, so I, I would like to say it's all rooted in good theology. I think in the South, it's just food is our love language. And, you know, the heart and soul of every home is the kitchen. And so that's, that's how we share love. And it's, you know, it's just, it's how we grieve. And certainly, um, it's, it's also a way, an entry point into telling stories because, you know, you sit around and you eat and you tell stories of, you know, the deceased or the last time you saw each other and that kind of thing. And it just, um, it, it's just sort of the, the gateway to grief, really, to be able to share together. And, you know, it, it started as a way to care for families so that they didn't have to cook, but it's so much more than that. It's, it's really just tangible, delicious love.
it's I think it's it's that's diff trying to find a, the right word to use there. That's just that sounds like an such a, a comforting thing. I mean, it really sounds like a, a community coming together. How much of that community, in sort of obviously from coming from your own personal perspective of what you know, comes from sort of the faith community or religious communities like the church that someone will be a member of, mm -hmm. as opposed to a more secular organisation? I know from here, we. I'm speaking myself for myself, so I'm talking about generally most of the people I know would have quite a secular funeral or what we'd call like a Church of England funeral where the, the church is somewhere that holds the ceremony, but they're not really a church member, so they don't have that com church community. Hmm. So maybe the people that would step in when my stepfather died, for example, my mum is a member of the Women's Institute, so the WI. She's also a member of the golf club. Um, they were together, so he was a big thing for, for them together. That was a big part of their life. And both the golf club and the WI stepped in, not with food, because that isn't really... I think there are some communities in the UK that do that, but generally speaking, food before the funeral isn't a big part of that ceremony. But they'll be there to sort of get the news around so people know. And with the WI in particular, they will say, is like, if there's anything you need? And if it was somebody who needed stuff cooked for them, they would step in probably with food and things like that, just in my mum's mm. case, it wasn't really necessary. But they um, they will make sure people know. So that in the golf club, they got it out to people. So my mum didn't have to tell everybody she could just tell a couple of close people and then they would and they were the people that would make that but both WI and the golf club lots of people came to the funeral they came to what we would normally call the like the wake afterwards <laughs> and that was a big thing but that was like secular organizations because we're not generally church members so we don't have that church community obviously there are people that do and it probably sits differently Sure. but from where you're from is it generally are made people more people members of churches and so that sort of kicks in so is that why you think that's such a, a a big thing in terms of church people being responsible for it? Is it just because more people are members of churches? I think so, yeah. Especially here in the Carolinas, you know, we're often referred to as the Bible Belt of the South. Um, we're highly concentrated with churches, especially Protestant churches. And it even, but the food piece is such a part of the culture that, um, you know, if you found out that a colleague at work had a death in their family, and you were close enough to know their home address, you would likely just take some food over to their house and drop it off too, whether or not you went to the same church or knew anything about that. So I think I think there is, it's hard to separate Southern culture from Southern Christianity. So, I mean, I think you know, it's it's so intertwined um, for in good and bad ways here yeah. that I think, um, yeah, I think it's, it's rooted in the church, but certainly, um, you know, and especially when you look at, who attends a funeral or memorial service, that kind of thing. It, you know, often it would be colleagues and coworkers and, you know, members of the community. It's, it's open to anybody. So certainly, you know, if, if the deceased, let's say the deceased was a church member, it would not matter if anybody else in their life was, they would all still come to that church for the service. Um, and, and nobody would ask, no, nobody would know the difference, that kind of thing. Um, I think that's where so much of that is just cultural too. the sense that you show up for the family and you show up to support them and, um, and to honor their loved one. And so what another common tradition here is to have, it's called a visitation or a receiving line. And often that's done either before the service, like the day before at the funeral home or, you know, sometime before the service. And that's a time when, members of the community can come and pay their respects to the family. But often at that, 
I remember when my mom died about 10 years ago and there were people that I had never met that came through the line to speak to my dad and myself. And they would, you know, they would say, you know, I knew your mom from work or from this organization, or, you know, she was really meaningful to me during this time in my life. And it's, and it's such a lovely opportunity to hear stories of your person. And, um, and often that, you know, so, so, so that was held in our case, that was held at the church where mom was a member, but everybody who came certainly was not a member there. And I don't, I don't know their faith traditions. I barely know some of their names, that kind of thing. So it's a really lovely hospitality in terms of, you know, from that standpoint of anyone can come and support the family, even if it's held at a church and they are not a person of faith, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Um, yeah. But often, you know, and, and there's also, there's plenty of services that are done in the funeral home for various reasons too, often out of respect, you know, especially if it's more of a, um, interfaith or multicultural family, there's various reasons you would do it at the funeral home instead of at a congregation. Um, and, you know, and people have all kinds of reasons for that. Um, anything from personal beliefs to like rifts in the family, whatever's going on there. Often the funeral home can be a much more neutral and hospitable place. If you do have family members who have either been hurt by the church or don't feel comfortable or that kind of thing. So um, that's where, you know, the funeral homes themselves can be a great place to do that. That is, um, you know, it's less, you know, it's, it's just more neutral. So the, there's, yeah. there's less emotional attachment to that. Yeah. And that's where funeral directors and officiants work very closely together, again, to be sure that the family is getting whatever they want and desire and will find most meaningful and helpful. Yeah. But that's, that's often, I've suggested that to families before especially if it's families where, you know, they said if, if it would be painful for significant close family members to be in a congregation or any kind of faith space, then it's not worth it. So that's where, you know, you can say the funeral home will be just as reverent and feel as reverent for the people for whom that's important, but also neutral and hospitable to those for whom a church may not be. Yeah, I think it's, I'm trying to put it into perspective, um, that the UK is increasingly a secular space. Mm -hmm. So we all have, people come from sort of different religions. And generally, I think I looked it up, and I think for the most recent year, which was like 2017, 76% of, of burials are cremations essentially in this country it's very high and along with that comes the fact that um you, when you go to the crematorium it has a, a service space so you can have hold a service there traditionally when cremations were sort of a newer thing what happened was people would have a church service mm -hmm. and then the family would essentially come with the vicar or the, the usually was a, a vicar would come along to the crematorium in the same way that they would attend a, a graveside. They would do a very short thing in the crematorium and then the, the, that would happen and that would be the end of it. But the problem is that now we have the same system, but fewer people have the service. So mm -hmm. you have slots at a crematorium. So uh, sorry, it's, 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 that's the way it's worked. So <laughs> you're there, you have so long thing and people don't now have the funeral service in church they have the service in the crematorium and they will pick 
somebody to either that can be a local person, a local religious person, they can just choose, like they can ask the, the local parish priest if they will do it, or they would, there are people attached to the crematorium who will do that for you, or you can pay and have somebody to come, they'll come and talk to you, they'll find out about the person, and then mm -hmm. on the day they will lead that, that mm -hmm. essentially that service. But mm -hmm. it's all done at the crematorium, and it is and often can be quite rushed because mm -hmm. the slots are still based on somebody having an additional service sure. yeah it's probably something that needs to change and now that so much has changed so a lot of what happens that happens in the after the funeral after the crematorium and people will go and quite often they're held in open spaces because the, the, the amount, you don't have many people are going to come so you can't have it at the house because if you have it at the house and also to make it open to people who aren't family so for colleagues to come or mm -hmm. there might be room for them at the crematorium but they might come to the wake so mm -hmm. in Ireland wake means a different thing so any of our listeners in Ireland I don't think I have many but I apologize I know it's not the same thing which just becomes standard language we use now um will come afterwards and it's usually quite often it can be held in like a community hall like a church hall but quite often it is held in a pub just because they have like a function room mm -hmm. still in this country you've still got quite a lot of pubs and so a lot of them have function rooms and that's quite a good space because they can one people can drink if they want to but you can also have like urns of tea and they'll do sandwiches and right. because we have people have had a very short service they need that crematorium you know space they need that that space in the in that pub or or, or community mm -hmm. hall to have the conversations to talk about the stories to do the right, bit that right. you would maybe do you know as part of another so it's a uh, yeah it's it's really interesting to know how much food is bound up in that ritual in your communities where it isn't so much here food is still a big part of a wake mm -hmm. the food that you serve there is very traditionally very similar to sort of it's sandwiches finger sandwiches but they tend to be whatever this cheese and onion um and scotch eggs for some reason and pork pie it's just very but you know what i mean all the vegetarian equivalents now so there's like right. it's all that sort of cold food you know you wouldn't really expect hot food it's unusual if that's what happens mm -hmm. um as i said not everyone's a drinker but there's always tea because we are still mm -hmm. britain so there is always tea the coffee will be terrible but the tea will be good um, and our then, tea will be full of sugar but yeah. we, we always have tea yeah. <laughs> so it's like you have but you have that and it is a, it is a very different but it shows you almost how almost the rituals are the same but they're just being held in different spaces so mm -hmm. our rituals <laughs> held very much around the wake because that is the space that's open for everybody where you can take your time mm -hmm. whereas the rest of it can be quite not obviously this is not everyone's experience and lots of different things there are still obviously people who are members of religious groups who are members of churches oh, cool. where they have the full thing and they may still have a crematorium bit but they will have the funeral service at the funeral mm -hmm. at the church and then they'll come for the crematorium there are obviously people of other faiths where cremation is not appropriate so they obviously will have a service in wherever their house of worship is sure, sure. um and then they'll be buried sometimes they have to be buried on sort of um a cemetery like a state-owned space because mm -hmm. they don't have the because some religions don't have the ability to to bury people in their own space but mostly that's what happens so yeah so the the, the wake is somewhere where everybody can go to so it's a uh, but the the same rituals are happening but they're happening in a different way I was going to say and I think you've sort of said a little bit about like how formal our funeral ceremonies there like in uh I, I mean the, the ones that happen here in in even in crematorium even with like a humanist celebrant they are still celebrate's the wrong word but it'll do for now but they are the per you know they are still very formal um and so mm -hmm. 
I think for some people almost too formal for some people mm-hmm. it's comforting for some people it isn't mm-hmm. um, sure. in your experience are so of actual services very formal or I would say, you know, it, it depends on the nature of it. I, I worked in pediatrics for so long when I was in the hospital. So often when I would officiate services for children, those would be more informal just because, you know, you, you wanted to help explain and normalize death and grief in a really healthy way for other young people who may be there. So it would not be as formal in high church as um, a, you know, an adult funeral would be, but it often just depends on the family. Certainly the aesthetics of the space set a tone no matter what. So if it's, if it's in a very formal church sanctuary or gathering space, that is going to feel like you should dress nicer and sit still and that kind of thing in a way that a space outside is going to feel more comfortable and, um, fluid. But I think, most of them really it just it just depends on the family and the nature of the congregation of that church and what what they desire i i have officiated some that were very formal and very you know liturgy and hymns and one homily or sermon or eulogy and that was it and then everyone went to the reception i've officiated others where they allowed anyone who wanted to to speak and it went on forever and it was very very informal, either in style or dress or liturgy. And it really just depends on what the family desires and what what the nature of that space and congregation is. Um, certainly, gravesides are often shorter just because often the elements are, you know, may or may not be in our favor. I've officiated some very cold graveside services in Chicago where if if the snow is coming, it's, it's a much shorter service and often more informal. And in the South, it's often very, very hot and humid. So often those are shorter and much less formal in attire and in style, again, for the practicality of walking through the cemetery in elements or just in general, and you want everyone to be safe. And so certainly, you know, they often put down sort of a tarp and carpet type thing for folks to make it easier to walk and there's often chairs to be sure people are more comfortable but that is where even if there was a more formal service in terms of attire and aesthetics and all of that often you could then you know at least put on more comfortable shoes to go to the cemetery and you know a rain jacket that kind of stuff so it, it really just depends the the family really sets the tone based on desires but again that the aesthetics of the space also set a tone and tell a story for better or worse as well. I think, I mean, part of what you wanted to talk about, the, the food side of it, and that you've shared so much of that, I think it's it's just, it's clearly just food is used perhaps in some ways very similarly, the, the sort of post-funeral thing, but we don't have, at least generally speaking, the, the sort of pre-funeral feel of the, the community almost looking care of and taking care through food. And that's a very obvious demonstration of how they do it. And obviously that's something that I find really interesting and, and lovely and, and and actually in a way it's not I don't know if it I mean I don't know I don't know if it's something that used to happen here and it's just as we've become more secular communities and people don't have those communities in place that that's something that's gone or if it's just something we ever had or I don't know um I'm, I would like to look into it I think it's something that people would be interested in as well but I think just sort of very 
to finish because I think we could talk about this for absolutely hours um I think we've sort of talked about the food side of it we've talked about the ritual we've talked about I think you even mentioned that the funeral is is for the living and I think I read a really interesting piece of um statistical there's a book from I think it's from the 50s I can't lay my hand on it because it's underneath about 1700 other books but it talks about um how actually statistically having a funeral and having it happen makes the start on the journey of grief easier Hmm. and almost not speeds it up in a sort of but makes that journey so people to return to being able to function more comfortably in normal life it speeds up that part of it so it speeds up that almost the immersion in absolute grief and so that actual almost the ritual of having the funeral enables people to then start working on returning to to normal life although it will always be different because you've mm-hmm. lost that person and I do think that's do you think that's something that's true do you think that's something this is like statistical evidence from the 50s it may or may not not be true now but it's sort of it feels comforting that that would be the case is it something that you would agree with oh absolutely I think I think any ritual that honors life and normalizes that we are all finite is helpful for all of us as a society, whether it's rooted in spirituality or science or data or just the reality that we are finite creatures. I think anything like that is helpful because it enables us to speak about life, to speak about death, to be authentic about our experiences and to be in community together and to share grief and joy and pain and memory and it's the start of legacy as well. The the second the person passes, that's that's the beginning of their legacy. And so those of us entrusted with carrying that on, that's where it starts. And it, especially for younger generations, we normalize that it's okay to be sad. It's okay to grieve. Grief is the price we pay for love. And you can still have a relationship with this person even after they've died in whatever way is important to you, whatever that looks like. But I think especially, you know, as people of faith, you know, I stand up and say, death does not have the final word. You know, we, we believe in the resurrection and we believe in hope and we believe that we will all be reunited. And that is of great comfort to a lot of people. It also is the community standing with the grieving and saying, we are with you and it is okay that you are sad. And it is okay that this is daunting and scary and we are going to be here with you. And it is a promise to not leave anybody alone, which again, that's regardless of faith tradition at all, is just to me, that's being a a good human is showing up for each other and saying, you are loved, how can I help? What are you carrying that's too heavy that I could help carry for you? Thank you. That's so beautiful. I think probably this is probably my last question, really. Um, would you be happy to share sort of we talked about food, we talked about what happens um when someone passes away. Would you be happy to share maybe um your specific experience, your personal experience? Sure. Uh so my mom died, like I said, 10 years ago, and she died at home in hospice care. So she died very peacefully. It was a really beautiful death in our living room. And then we actually knew the funeral home folks who who came to pick up her body because they were church members at the same place where she attended. 
So that was a huge comfort for us to know that she was cared for even to the end by people that we knew and that she knew and respected. And it was, she was home on hospice for about one day after hospital. So it was very quick, very peaceful. And we had folks who came by to visit throughout the day before she died. And our refrigerator was stocked full of food and, you know, macaroni and cheese and chicken and casseroles and all this kind of stuff that folks had brought throughout the month that she was in the hospital before she died. There was so much food and she went into the hospital mid-December and then died January 13th. So we also had so many Christmas cookies <laughs> that were left over because every well-meaning church lady in South Carolina brought cookies apparently. And of course, you know, dad and I would go home and, you know, shower and then go back to the hospital. And then we were home for a little bit, but then she went back to the hospital. So it was, you know, it's just chaos as it is at end of life stuff. You kind of lose track of time in the most sacred, lovely ways. And anyway, so we had, when the funeral home folks came to pick up her body, you know, I said, you know, we have, we have Malbec and Christmas cookies and they're a little bit stale, but you're welcome to them, you know, uh, because it's just, you offer food and who are we not to be hospitable? And, uh, you know, so it's just, we, we had Malbec and stale Christmas cookies sitting there with her body and it was lovely. There was, you know, some steak from the night before that somebody had made. And, you know, it was like, this is really good steak. Did we have this yesterday? Nobody can remember, you know. Um, and then we had other folks from the church that brought more food for us because, of course, we had people that came in from out of town. It was just, her funeral was beautiful. She chose most of it herself and had planned most of it herself, which um, I highly recommend doing for any of us. It's so, it's such a lovely discipline and act and work of art to think about how you want to be remembered and how you want your service to be and your favorite things. So she had chosen a lot of those things and the pastors who officiated did an incredible job. And especially for my dad and for me, we were both clergy. So to be able to just be a husband and a daughter in that moment and not be the professionals was such a gift. And um, our colleagues and friends who officiated her funeral they're exactly who she wanted and they did it beautifully and perfectly. And it was very her and everybody remarked about how much the service felt like she planned it, which is such a gift and just so lovely. And so folks came back to our house after, you know, we had the service at the church and then we had a reception there, but then there was more food at the house for, you know, sort of, you know, the closer family and friends, much more informal. And so we got there and at some point in the day, somebody had brought, more chicken and more finger sandwiches and more mac and cheese and deviled eggs and sweet tea and all the stuff. And the funniest thing was in November before she was in the hospital in December, she had had her kitchen updated and renovated. So she had a new oven and new appliances and that kind of stuff. And I was living at Chicago at the time and had flown back to South Carolina to be there. But what we realized that evening after the funeral, when we were all, you know, eating this food is that nobody knew how to work the oven. So everybody said, how do we heat up this chicken? I'm like, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I've ever used that oven. I don't think anybody's used that oven because it was brand new and then she got sick or, you know, whatever. And so it was hysterical. So, so many of my favorite friends and family all stood around in this brand new oven to try to figure out how it worked. And somebody said, 
can we just eat cold chicken? Does it matter? You know, and it was just, it was just beautiful. So people stood around eating chicken and all this other stuff. It just, it was one of those, it was hysterical. Somebody else was trying to open wine. And of course it exploded on the brand new white kitchen tile. And, you know, I said, you know, she would love it. It's, and, you know, a perfectly pristine kitchen doesn't look lived in. So the good thing is it was very lived in very quickly. And mom would have loved every bit of it. And it took, I mean, it was months before anybody knew how the oven worked. Somebody found the book for that oven or something. I don't know. Uh, but it was, it was just one of those things that it's just, it was such a gift that the food just appeared. I truly don't know who brought half of it. I mean, I know I have a sense of like who they probably were, but I truly don't know where it all came from. Dad doesn't either. And it didn't matter. It was just, it was there and our friends and family could just, you know, gather with us and we could laugh, we could cry, we could eat cold chicken, warm chicken, whatever. And it just, it was just such a gift of being together and remembering her. And, you know, we, we could be hospitable by opening our home, but only because other people gave us everything else that we needed in order to do that. And my mom just oozed hospitality. So it was, it was so fitting and such a gift that that would be how we ended that day. And and now we have more stories because again, it's it's all it's all stories. And so, ten years later, everybody that was there remembers that wine exploded on the brand new kitchen tile. And it's just, it's just, it's one of my favorite stories from the day because, you know, the best and worst part of grief is life goes on, and bottle of wine is going to explode, and sometimes the oven works and sometimes it doesn't. But all that matters is your people were there everybody was fed, everybody had enough to eat and drink. And, you know, just that sense of nourishment to get up and do whatever came next. And, you know, to learn grief with other people around you. And, you know, it's one of those laughing and crying often go together. And it's just, it was just, it was so sacred and so lovely. And I think that I, I love the levity that often comes with the vulnerability of grief. And I think that's, if we could promote that more, I wish we could, because it's just often there's so much just gorgeous humor that comes from some of the absolute gut-wrenching and heartbreaking times of, you know, just the human condition. But I think it's both are so sacred and both keep us going. And it and it's the people that you trust to be there in those moments that that matter. And that, you know, all we can do is show up and tell the stories and make new memories and life goes on. Thank you. I think it is, isn't it? It's the afterwards, afterwards, actually, I think there's the times because much as my stepdad's after funeral was lovely, there was a huge amount of people came. He had some family that came down from London, a lot of older people like his mum's generation. And because he wasn't, I can't remember, he wasn't that old. He was in his early seventies, but him, he had cancer sadly. And so the, the, his rest of his family quite long lived, and so they were still family. So they came down from London. Um, my parents, um, my mum doesn't live, and she lives down in Devon. But I remember the sort of contingents meeting together, and and that was an interesting combination because I remember some older people, and they were saying, "Oh, as my mum had and my sister and had chosen like a wicker 
task because mm-hmm. Tony hated waste and they, they said what's the point that you know it's going in, in you know it's he was being cremated so what's the point in a you know it may as well be that and so I remember that but I remember the the one of the um elder um relatives I can't remember which one and I wouldn't say because we're on a podcast even if I could <laughs> and she said oh it's a bit like burying him in a laundry basket and there was a member from the golf club one of Tony's close friends and he said in his very broad sort of quite Devon accent and he went yeah well it's better than burying them in a wardrobe and that, that's always remember it's true we need that and it's just it's yeah the little bits life yeah. goes on and it is I think the more the more vulnerable and authentic we are the funnier it all is yeah um, yeah and it's just it's, and it's such a gift it's yeah yeah as long as, long as we have humor we, we can do anything with these yeah. finite lives of ours yeah, no, I think the humour is, is is particularly important. I think you can't, yeah, you have you have to, don't you? Otherwise, you just sort mm-hmm. of be in bits. Yeah, it's just, it's like you said, it's the stories that you tell afterwards of the person, isn't it? That you remember that how they were, and yeah, the so it's special memories. And but yeah, but it's the laughs and things that you remember afterwards. Because mm-hmm. I remember, and I so this isn't perhaps a celebrity. I remember, I at the time was a, a front of house manager for a theatre, so. Um, you spend a lot of time as a front of my commercial theatre talking to people you don't know, being very nice to them, and basically having a very short connection. And 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 it's in the job title. So <laughs> anyway, you, you've quite a short connection, but you obviously have to. You're very pleasant, and that, that's your job. And there's a certain part of a ma- when you're at a funeral when you have to do that. And I nearly and I did manage to stop myself from saying, "So did you enjoy the show?" <laughs> Because doing that and doing in that particular type of action, action, you know, actions, usually in my head were associated with then asking people. I didn't, but it did come very, very close. <laughs> Goodness knows it would have happened. And it's not meant in any disrespectful way. Oh, it's never, never. You're meeting people that you may never meet again. Obviously, you'll have right. close family and friends that you will, but there will always be people who, you know, right. you're only there for a right. sort of smidgen of a second. But um, yes, no, I didn't manage to say it, but it was, I, I did feel it was only a matter of time before something like that. Yeah. So yes, I think that's really important. And with that, I think we'll have to, this conversation has been so interesting and thank you so much for talking me through this. I think it, it will help people to hear the different things and other people's responses, because I think we can be um, sort of very, um, you know, it's a term we use a lot, but very much in a bubble and it's quite interesting for people to know that things happen in slightly different but very similar ways across the world and how much we share and and I think in grief that's particularly important so thank you so much for this I really appreciate it it's been lovely talking to you oh thank you it was my my privilege and honor and uh, yeah if you ever visit the states I'll be happy to make you funeral potatoes on a perfectly good celebratory day so Thank you so much. I will definitely hold you to that. I've seen recipes for those potatoes and they sound very, very good. I would love, I'll, yeah, I will make you a funeral spread and then we'll just, you know, watch movies and laugh the rest of the day. There doesn't need to be a funeral to have the food, but thank you so much. This Thanks again. Bye-bye. And as we near the end of the episode, I hope everybody really got something from my conversation with Ashley Ann. She's a wonderful, warm human being and really brought home to me how important it is to have somebody like her to support families through these difficult rituals. And I think she clearly demonstrated how important food and hospitality is for cushioning people during difficult times. As always, if you want to talk to me about anything in this episode, or you want more information, um, I will put things in the show notes, but you can get in touch with me through the comments on my website and through nearly all of the social media channels. There are so many now where I'm pretty much at Fairy Tales Food. You should hopefully be able to find me. And in the meantime, thanks so much for joining me on this really important episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. (laughs) 